season one of Written in Stone, the 1990s is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com. Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. November 2018. It's a cold day at Smith Rock, Oregon, but that hasn't stopped the commotion. It seems all the locals are out, though not for a normal crag day. They're there partly as spectators to watch history being made. Because see, one of the best, arguably the best climber in the world is here. And like he usually does, he set his goals high. But today, his goal is not a first ascent. It's not to establish the hardest route in the area like he's done countless times across the globe. Today, he's here to do Just Do It. But he's not here to just do it. He's here to onsite it. First try, no falls, only the info he can gather from reading the rock. A feat never before accomplished, rarely, if ever, even attempted. The excited chatter from the crowd goes quiet as he steps onto the wall, immediately climbing with a speed and confidence that looks like he's done laps on this route for years. It's no surprise that he's quickly through the bottom half and shaking out at the good rest below the steeper purple rock. He launches into the first crux and the murmuring falls to a hush. If the climber's feeling unsure, the crowd can't tell. Only his signature power screams betray the level of effort, but his movement remains locked in. Nearing the final boulder, he reaches up to feel a hold, doesn't like it, retreats, and everyone at Smith Rock is holding their breath. He makes a quick change to plan B, locks the hold down, and makes it to the jug. Still, nobody dares yet celebrate. They know, like Jibay Tribu did in 1992 when he became the first to climb the route, that it's still possible to fall in those final few moves. But not today. 18 minutes after leaving the ground, in a performance that will go down in history, Adam Ondra has just done it. Adam, welcome to Written in Stone. Thank you. Hello. We are incredibly happy to have you here. I can't think of anyone I would rather talk to about the importance of history and uh, just do it and Jibe Tribu than you. So thanks for making the time. Thank you. Very, very welcome. And I'm really glad to talk about specifically this route because it's just an amazing route and piece of history. Yeah. Well, to start, I have a, a fun question for you. Um, in my research, uh, on the ascent of Just Do It, on the first ascent, I discovered that after Jibay did it, 
the locals threw a party for him. And at that party, as often happens in a climber party, a pull-up competition broke out. And Tribu won the pull-up competition by doing 80 pull-ups in a row. So what I want to know first is how many pull-ups in a row can you do? <laughs> mm, definitely not 80. I haven't tried it for <laughs> some time, but I would say maximum 40. 40 is a lot. Yeah, could be. <laughs> I mean, I think I could do more if I can like rest and only hang on one arm. But I think that's mm-hmm. not part of the that's not part of the game. Yeah. And in, in an interview, Trebu said there there might have been some cocaine at the party. So that may have helped him with the 80 pull-ups. <laughs> <laughs> it was the 90s after all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you're excited to talk about this route in particular. And it wasn't your first 8C plus on site. You know, if we look purely at the numbers, you've yep. done that many times. So what was it about Just Do It that was so special? I think it was mostly about Smithrock in general, as I remember the book called Rockstars. And mm. there are a couple of, uh, not so many, but a couple of pictures from the Smithrock. And I was always really impressed by the how the climbing in Smithrock looked in general. And there was always one article in the climbing magazine called Montana here in Czechia. So I think I was reading it was I was like nine or eight. And there was like the picture of the dark side of the moon, the 13A. And it just mm-hmm. like, wow. And I think for some reason, since the very beginning uh, of my climbing career, I was always really impressed by a really nicely clean cut wall. So I was always thinking like, ah, have to go to Smithrock. And until quite many years later, for the first time when I actually saw a picture of just do it, because I've seen many pictures of like the lower sector, but I've never seen just mm-hmm. do it. And then I, when I understood that that's the just the middle of this incredible face of this incredible spire. And I think I've, I would like to also say that me coming from Czechia, where we have a lots of tradition in sandstone climbing, where it's essentially always about climbing these towers and spires and getting to the summit of them, that makes the whole route even more special because most of our towers are never really very steep. They're usually only vertical. So having a wall which looks pretty much similar to our tower, but having a face which is that steep uh, as just to it looked so cool. Yeah, that's like the monkey face is like the standout formation in Smith. It's mm-hmm. it's hard to yeah. not look at it and be excited to climb it. Yeah, yeah. And I also, in my mind, for many years, I was always playing the game that like I would always like to try to onside the historical routes. Mm-hmm. And usually, like, you know, if I onside an AB established in 2000s, I don't really celebrate so much. But whenever I onside an 8B from like the 80s, uh, 13D in American grading scale, uh, that is usually something because usually those grades are really sandbagged and usually also the s- climbing style of, a, of the 80s, most importantly, it's more like face climbing. It's really hard to read. It's not very steep and stuff like this. So uh, I was really happy that some years ago I did like Ravage, uh, which is uh, an AB plus 8C in Basel back from 1986. Mm-hmm. And that was like the first 
uh, AB plus from the 80s that uh, has been on site and I think it's still the only one. So wow. uh, I think just do it is uh, is an 8C plus that has been on site with the earliest date of a first ascent. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I... Yeah. I'm not surprised by that at all. That style is not popular yeah. these days, sadly, because yeah. like you said, it's it's what the clean faces and those really striking lines yeah. uh, sort of lend themselves to that style. Yeah. So on that trip on the, to Smithrock, I was actually very disappointed not to have onsighted to Bolt or Not To Be, mm. uh, which I think, especially that one to onsight is really hard. Still completely possible. I was quite close but uh, after having failed on to bolt or not to be i was even more uh psyched and also under pressure that uh i really wanted to do just do it on site yeah i bet from the video it looked like every climber in oregon was out there watching <laughs> um are you somebody who climbs better with an audience i think when it is a route that is really important to me then it doesn't really make much difference because the most pressure that I felt was just from the fact that right now I'm facing just do it super historical route and it mm. would really mean a lot if I would do it so if like five people are watching or 20 or 50 it doesn't really make much of a difference mm. how did they all know you were going for the onsite on that day did you announce it somewhere or do you usually keep those things quiet um, we would stay there for a few days, uh, before, so I would sample some of the other routes in Smithrock. I would attempt to bolt or not to be, and I was kind of waiting for the weather to be a little bit warmer because everybody warmed me from like the monkey face being way colder than all the mm. other tracks. So mm -hmm. I just picked the day that according to the forecast, was slightly, slightly warmer. Um, it was still really cold. And <laughs> I also really wanted to have Alan Watts uh, right there. Yeah. So also we met Alan some days before and he would confirm, yeah, yeah, he would make it out there on that day. So I think it really helped me to have Alan watching on that try. Yeah, it's really cool that he's there and you see him in the video and you, you see his like uh, excitement and anticipation of what you're doing in the video. I had the pleasure of introducing Alan for a speech he gave just recently. Um, what a what a great guy and what a visionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely what he just turned from a random climbing crack from Smithrock into... Uh, a premium or the first sport climbing crack in, in America and still an amazing crack even today is, uh, is really good. Yeah. And Smith Rock has become this like stage where many climbing dramas have played out in the U.S. Uh, from the birth of sport climbing here to bolted cracks to chipping and more, including uh, some drama with Traboo swooping in and climbing routes that that Alan had bolted and was working on. Um, and while it's in the, the norm here in the U.S. to give the developer time to finish their route before climbing on it, I think there's also some value in the best climbers in the world sort of 
competing for the first ascent. Um, which method do you prefer and why? Do you, do you like to have somebody hand you a thing that's bolted or do you prefer competing with other people to be the first? I think I completely respect if, uh, if the person who bolts it wants to take his or her time to work on it. Sure. And let's say red tag it. On the other hand, I think, uh, especially in the modern era, it's getting more and more common that all the projects are opened and mm-hmm. uh, you can just go and try it. And I think even for the people that bolt it, I think it's uh, quite reasonable behavior because if you work on a route with somebody else, it is more likely that you will find all the tricks, you will find the best possible beta, sure. and you will send it maybe quickly. I think it is maybe a bit of a shame that all the media attention focuses on the person who actually ends up making the first ascent. I think it would be a nicer to have something like a team ascent. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes if you if 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 you both end up sending it in the similar period of time, I think it it should kind of remain unknown who who ends up sending it or not. <laughs> <laughs> who ends like up like that. sending it first you know <laughs> yeah yeah i like that and i've seen some guidebooks that credit the developer yeah. you know they say bolted by or developed by yeah and i think that's a, a good policy i think it is tricky because some routes are very easy to bolt mm-hmm. but then maybe it, it often happened to me that I'm traveling all over the world and I just made first ascents of so many open projects and some open projects were just ready to be climbed. The person already put a lot of effort into cleaning it and getting the route ready, whereas sometimes placing the bolts is maybe only 10% of the work Right, and uh, cleaning it and making it good. uh, takes much more time. So I would say it's individual. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And you know, sometimes developing routes is very tricky. Sometimes, you know, usually the most, some lines are just epic. I don't know, mm-hmm. like biography in Seyus. That, that that line is just so obvious that, and the rock is so perfect that placing the bolts into it takes like three hours. And if if you don't do it, Thousands and thousands of other people would do it probably <laughs> sometime later. Yeah. Whereas like some routes are absolutely epic. Yeah. Where, but the line is super amazing when you look at it when it's finished. But before it was bolted, it's not really clear where it goes. And I would say just do it. It's somewhere in between. I think mm. It is so inviting to climb like right in the middle of that face. But I think finding the perfect line in the middle of this blank looking wall is not so easy and not so obvious. So I think here, Alan Watts had a lot of vision to find the right way where where to climb in the middle of that face. Yeah, and nowadays it's, you know, considerably... Um, below the top of the scale, but back then it was at the top of the scale. And I imagine that finding the next level is also one of the challenges. Um, I think when Tribu did it, it was just the second 8C plus in the world after Hubble. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's probably 
pretty tempting when you know there's a bolted route that could be at the next level uh, to just climb on it regardless. But I'm yeah. curious how how much of the percentage of pushing grades higher, because you're someone who's pushing the limits of climbing, mm-hmm. how much of it is finding the next mm-hmm. grade higher and how much of it is actually climbing the route? Finding hard challenges is easy. Mm. Finding hard challenges that all the, at the same time climbs incredibly well and are like aesthetically incredible, that's quite rare. Mm. And I think that's why Just Do It is so rare. Uh, especially nowadays when you gain some more experience as the first ascensionist, you also can compare how many world-class areas actually climb on a really bad rock that really opens your eyes on what is possible, what is a good potential for hard climbing. Because yes, most majority of the climbing cracks all over the world are not like world-class rock like Seyus or Flotanger. Right. Mostly you just have to work. But once you work, uh, something really special can can get out of it. But still, I live in a part of Europe that we don't really have that much rock within like really short driving distance. But living here and having gained really a lot of vision from traveling all over the world, I could actually find the lines that I think are quite amazing even though mm. th- those lines I would never really see maybe 15 years ago. Right. Uh, so I think that is quite cool that you can actually find hard and maybe not the best line, but still pretty good almost anywhere. That's actually something I've admired about you for quite some time is that you're willing to do the scrappy, maybe not as aesthetically pleasing um, yeah. that don't even maybe climb well, you're willing to do those things for pure difficulty, but then you also seek out the really grand lines. Yeah. Um, something like uh, your Vasil Vasils at the name of it, mm-hmm. that, that sort of comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think in general, the aesthetics of the line might be in general overrated and the beauty mm. of the mo- movement is usually underrated. So some of the climbs that actually don't look very good can right. turn out into really good routes. It is really a lot of fun to climb them. And some aesthetically incredible lines might be kind of boring to climb. Mm-hmm. I think Just Do It is the rare case when the aesthetics and the beauty of the movement meets. It's a real pleasure to climb. And for Tribu, when he did it, he had all three. He had the the beauty of the line, the great movement, and the world-class difficulty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and in your case, it was world-class on-site difficulty. So <laughs> that's that's pretty special. Yeah, yeah. I think the controversy of, for, for example, like Gibet stealing the project <laughs> is something I would never really do, but it also kind of fits the mentality of the 90s. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Which, absolutely. <laughs> looking back is, uh, yeah, those were the times. Also, the fact that he chipped a few holes mm-hmm. is I would never do it, and I'm absolutely against the chipping. On the other hand, I must admit that those few holes helped 
to make this route an absolute masterpiece. Mm. It actually mm-hmm. climbs better with those chipped holes. Sure. I think it would go from the modern point of view, but it would be just such a hard boulder on that last section. It would be maybe 9A+, plus, maybe 9B, but it would definitely be not as classic mm. as it is right now. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. And <laughs> I, I think it's important to mention that even though he was accused of you know stealing these routes, the locals still threw him a party after he made the ascent. Yeah. So they had sort of <laughs> forgiven him just wanting to see the the standards rise. Exactly. That's really nice to see. And what I've just said is not like uh, that I would like to accept chipping. Right, right. Uh, Absolutely. But it's an interesting perspective to to look at it. Yeah, I think you have to weigh all the factors. And yeah. that that's certainly <laughs> one of the factors. I mean, here in Wyoming, uh, the limestone that we're climbing on wouldn't even really be climbable if it weren't for comfortizing some holds. It's really, exactly. really sharp and yeah. you would slice your fingers on every route if the developer didn't file some edges down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Tribu was working on Just Do It, um, he was sort of coming up through the grades uh, competing with lots of other people. He had all these contemporaries like... Uh, Ed Langer and uh, Didier Rabatou and Jerry Moffat and Ben Moon and the Le Ministral brothers. Um, so he had all these people who he was competing against, both on indoor walls and outdoors um, for first ascents. And I'm curious, how important it, is it for you to have people like uh, Megos and Stefano and Seb and Jakob opening hard things as well. Does that keep you motivated to try harder? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is always nice to not only make first ascents all the time, but also come and check out the routes from the others. And I think the best is if you're actually working on the route with another world-class climber at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think most importantly, it really makes the process of cleaning the route, figuring out the betas, linking the sections so much more enjoyable and in the end, much more efficient. And I think the biggest difference between the climbers of today and the climbers of the 90s is that we are willing to share this experience. We are aware that all of this is actually very helpful for us. Whereas I think the vibes back in the 90s were way more competitive, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only outdoors, but also indoors. When we meet all of us in the isolation of the World Cups nowadays, the atmosphere is, is really good. Uh, at least what I've heard from the stories, it was not always the same uh, in the 90s. But at the same time, it's really cool and funny to hear all the interesting <laughs> stories. <laughs> yeah, in my research, I've uncovered some really fun sort of battles back and forth between climbers um, in the way that they're naming their routes as little jabs at each other. and. Yeah. Um, it's really fun to see all that, but I really do love the camaraderie that we get to see, you know, especially from like your YouTube channel and from, uh, Stefano's YouTube channel. We get a lot of 
uh, crossover episodes and and everyone sharing beta and trying to push the limits forward together. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I agree. Um, so Jibe Tribu was one of the the first serious competitors um, on on indoor walls. Um, when when competition climbing was at its sort of highest back in the 90s. Um, but ultimately, his first love was always climbing outside. He loved the community and the lifestyle of it all, and he said so in, in many interviews. Um, so I'm curious, with the Olympics in play now, is it tough for you to juggle the competition schedule and your love of climbing on real rock uh, not to mention being a new dad all at the same time. Congrats, mm. by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely very difficult to juggle my motivation because I know that uh, the years are passing and it's not going to be that many years that I can really keep on the very cutting edge. And I still have many projects in my mind that I want to climb outdoors. But at the same time, there is the Olympics and I want to have my uh, my chance to to maybe get the medal there so but at the same time it was kind of possible maybe 10 or 15 years ago to kind of try to do both uh but now it's really getting more specialized and uh, mm -hmm. and the climbing style on the competitions is not really that similar to actual rock climbing anymore so uh it's really hard to kind of also deal with that mentally you know if you're just stuck in a climbing gym for many months before a certain important competition you then you the competition comes and you kind of feel like it's even more pressure to actually you have to perform because uh unlike athletes in other sports uh that are training for the competitions and they are the milestones of their career uh Climbing is always divided indoors and outdoors. And for me, yeah, outdoors is maybe even more important than indoors. And uh, if I'm training for the competitions, I definitely feel like I'm missing the, the rock climbing a lot. Also for the fun of it, but also for the fact that, yeah, I still have a project, a lot of projects in my mind that I would like to climb one day. Yeah, that's exciting to hear. I. I often hear really good climbers uh, lament that they're sort of running out of projects. So it's good to hear you being excited because you've <laughs> got these harder things everywhere. No, I'm not even close to running out of projects. <laughs> there are so many. And the more that's I good. climb, the more projects I see. Oh, that's awesome. I'm curious about uh, grading. When Tribu... Uh, graded just do it um the 14c some people in the community um the people he was competing against at you know to be one of the best climbers said we don't think you have the track record to to claim this and he was very adamant that it's never going to be downgraded this one is you know this grade is right and uh, history has proven him correct but but i could see where that would lead people to want to sandbag things and not give their true opinion uh, for fear that things might be downgraded. And I think I recently saw on your 8A, um, uh, maybe it was a few years ago that you had, you said, I don't feel like I'm, I'm not courageous enough to give it the higher grade, even though I think it might be there. 
Uh, and I can't remember what route that was about, but talk to me a little about that, like the feelings of grading things and, and being willing to give those big numbers. So I think grading is important in our sport. Sure, uh, sure. I think everybody has a little bit different relationship with, with grading, but if rock climbing should be a sport, then the grading should be there. And we should be also willing to discuss about the grades. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really like the the opinion is like, yeah, 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 I don't know what it is. I don't care about the grades. And those people usually might really care about the grades more. And I think if the <laughs> grades should make a sense, we should really discuss them. And mm-hmm. only in case we are discussing them and we give our honest opinion, only in that case, they can be really relevant and as close to truth as possible. In general, when making first ascents, I would say it's better to rather be careful. And maybe when you are not really sure whether it's a lower grade or higher grade, maybe it's better to go for the lower grade because the danger of maybe not finding the best possible beta is mm. quite high, especially today with maybe different tactics, different gear like knee pads. Uh, it's even though you're a really good knee pad, knee bar climber, it's pretty easy to miss uh, some sure. knee scum, something that doesn't really help so much, but might really uh, just lower down the intensity of the whole route. So I think because of that, I tend to be rather careful when proposing a grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. But I'm also happy that you're willing to stand up and say, no, I do think this is harder than anything else in the yeah. world. I'm going to give it this grade. Only when I feel like pretty confident about it. Yeah. So, sure. so that's my way. Yeah. Well, on your YouTube channel, um, which I, I actually really believe is a real gift to the climbing community. Um, it's, it's rare that we get to see so, uh, so much behind the scenes. So thank you for that. Um, but you regularly go beyond just climbing hard things to take a look at the history of an area or, um, or talk to someone who was instrumental in creating an area um, and being at the top of the game why is it important for you to regularly reach back and highlight that history? So in general, yes, I enjoy making those videos. I think they are a way how I can give something back to the climbing community. But I would say the videos that I enjoy the most are about filming historical routes and ideally even meeting with the people that made those hard first ascents. and. Somehow, since I was a little kid, I was always really interested in the climbing history. I quite enjoy history in general. So I think he, for example, when I was a little kid driving with my parents that are always also climbers and they were climbing since they were 15, listening to so many dif- different stories, sometimes a mm. little hilarious stories because they were right there at the beginning beginning of the free climbing in Europe. They were one of the first 
people in our country actually red pointing some of the routes and mm. uh, so it was always like a big source of uh, interesting stories and then i could hear those stories and actually go to the climbing crag and see those routes uh, see those routes in real uh, that those stories were about and yeah already when i was 10 years old i wanted to climb some of these strange routes i don't know like one route for example is like a 7c but you have to climb it barefoot otherwise it's impossible so <laughs> the first essentialist would like uh walk for a few months barefoot to kind of strengthen his toes <laughs> with a modern uh, shoes now you can do it with a climbing shoe but it was like really important and like at that time for example that route uh even though it was more than 20 years since the first ascent hasn't seen the second ascent so it was really interesting for me to go out there and try to repeat it and stories like this so and then it kind of grow i could when i was like 17 16 i started making more first ascents but at the same time i felt like yeah i should really repeat some of those historical Mm. roots in order to kind of know what the level was and then if i would continue making my first ascents i want to have a good comparison uh, of how my first ascent stands with the comparison of the other routes. Yeah, I mean, I love that you lean into those like quirky little historical things like that. Uh, one of my favorite episodes was the the bridge that you're climbing the arete yeah. uh, on the bridge. It's so fun to see you uh, go and do those things there with the people who who put them up to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And I would also say like people who develop crags and make first ascents, they are not ordinary people. They Mm. are characters and they definitely have something to say. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I want to share with the community. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's sort of why I started this podcast. It's a, you know, I've made a lot of podcasts in my time and uh, climbing history is something that's so rich in in fun and dramatic and exciting stories that I just felt like I I wanted to start telling those stories and to talk to the you know the superstars of today who were really inspired by those stories uh, to to become who they are. So yeah, good effort. I actually really appreciate that somebody is really doing the podcast about the climbing history (laughs) and not just about training and i think climbing is changing so much recently Mm -hmm. and i think it's really easy to forget the climbing history and what our roots are and i think it's really important to to at least let the new climbers uh get informed yeah they might be not interested. Then some of them might not really be interested, but some of them definitely will be interested. Yeah, and we're gonna try to tell it in a really fun way, so that you know, yeah. even if they're not necessarily interested in the history, their friends are gonna be saying, "You should listen to this podcast. It's really fun." Yeah. So, well, Adam, I can't thank you enough uh, for taking time out of your busy competition schedule and your busy life to sit down and chat with me. Uh, beyond the fact that you've push the limits of climbing to heights most of us never even imagined. I appreciate what you do to continue inspiring the next generation. And, you know, after all, that's what history is all about. Thank you very much. It was fun. 
Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts, but like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review. And tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym. Follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias. And together, we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents, one decade at a time. Stoners, what is up? You know, I got the sense talking to Adam, he was like relaxed and laid back and chilling while we were talking. And I got the sense that he would be willing to talk about climbing history all day long. I didn't want to take up too too much of his time. I know he's busy. He's got a whole team working over there. Um but I really got that sense and I really appreciate that about him and, and the way that he is always, you know, honoring the history of, of all of this uh, in his videos, including, you know, people we've never heard of. Um, he, he really takes the time and the, makes the effort to talk to the first ascensionists or the developers, um, uh, the important people in the the life of the roots and the things that he's climbing on. So I, I really appreciate that. Before we go any further, I want to give a big shout out to uh, our first legend patron. That is David Kettle and his daughter, Lily Kettle. Or maybe I should say Lily Kettle and her dad, David Kettle. Maybe that's more appropriate. Um, Lily, I watched some of your videos on Instagram. I'm impressed. Um, and also, you got me really psyched to go to Font and take my daughter to Font when she's a little bit older to climb some of those kids' circuits. I have never, I had never seen a video of the kids' circuits in Font, and your video got me psyched for that. And also, we have a great font-centered episode coming later this season about a, a woman in Font that I think you're really going to love, Lily. And, and I'm looking forward to in a bunch of years when we do the, you know, the 2020s or maybe even the 2030s season, um, maybe there's going to be an episode about you. Psyched for that. Uh, and also, shout out to our second legend patron, Josh Dees. Josh was actually one of my very first mentors, maybe my first mentor in climbing. Um, he was a manager at the gym where I started and really got me motivated to be a better climber. So it means the world to me that Josh is still supporting the things I'm doing, you know, 20 
27 years, 20, I don't even know how long anymore, a long time later. So thanks, Josh. I appreciate that. Um, for the rest of you, if you have not joined the Patreon yet, it's free. And I just want to point out that over there right now, I'm, I'm looking here. Let me, let me check it. Uh, I have a poll up for what the next season is going to be the 80s, the 2000s, or the 70s. And currently we're at 9% for the 70s, 18% for the 80s, 73% for the 2000s. So if you disagree with that, you need to get in there and vote on that poll. Um, and hopefully your decade wins. I, I'm going to go most likely with whatever wins in here. So tell your friends. If you think the 80s are next get your people in there. If you think the 2000s should be winning as well, get your people in there. I've got some bonus episode ideas that are going to be coming soon, available just in the Patreon channel, as well as a giveaway that I've been constructing in my head that we'll be doing over there very, very soon. You guys will hear from me again on Wednesday, so I'm going to shut up now. Uh, I'm right in the middle of a training session, actually, and my rest time is long up, so I need to get back out into the gym. But uh, coming Wednesday, the developer, Bolter, who, who gave Just Do It to the world before Jibé Tribu, um climb the thing. Alan Watts is joining us to talk about um, Smith in the early days, to talk about um, developing Just Do It. It was a really interesting story I didn't know, uh, as well as his relationship with Tribu, even though Tribu snaked some of his routes out from under him. Um, really great interview with an absolute legend. I'll see you in a couple days. Okay, uh, hold on. I'm back. I have another rest period. I ran back upstairs to record this. I did the math while I was out there. And this year will be year number 29 that I've been climbing. I walked into the gym for the second time on April 7th, 1995. And I bought a membership that day. And that's where it all started. So... Josh, thank you.